Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. And I just realized this morning as I was preparing uh, to come that it's been since July 4th weekend since I've preached here. And so because of that, there may be some of you out there who have no idea who I am, no clue. And so my name is Doug, and I'm part of the preaching team here. I'm part of the the pit crew here. And Brian and I, Brian preached the first service. We have the honor of this, this slot getting ready to head into the Christmas season. Next week, we'll pick up with Tim's series, the songs we sing, and head right on into Christmas. But this week, we're going to talk about our hope. We're going to talk about why we celebrate what's coming up in a few weeks. Why do we have a reason to go there and celebrate? And yesterday, I was getting ready for that. Our family, we were a little slow. I know it's usually like right after Thanksgiving. We were out of town, so busy week. So yesterday was our day, tree and the whole nine yards. So I get up. I get the tree out of the garage. We don't do live tree. We have pets and small children, and live trees don't work. Um, After going out of town and coming back home and finding a puddle on the ground one time, we were just like, okay, we'll just, thank you, Martha Stewart. We'll just, (laughs) so I unfolded my tree, and it looked perfect. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And we, and we got out hot chocolate, and, and the kids started drinking hot chocolate, and we were playing Christmas music, and, and I went up into the attic, and I pulled out all the, the bins of Christmas decorations and everything else, and as I, I got downstairs, and I plopped the last one down, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm sweating like a pig. What is the deal? It's December, but that's Myrtle Beach in December, Right? But then it wasn't over because then I, I had to go to Walmart. I had to go to Walmart. And um, so I walk in and I realize that it must be light day because there's other aisles with decorations, with wreaths and all this stuff. They're empty. They're empty. The light aisle, which is where I needed to go, was crammed with people. And so I guess it was sort of an unofficial outside light day because that's, that's what I was doing. And so I hope today to finish this whole thing. We've actually gone a little bit further than we have. We keep building each year. And I felt really compelled to build this year because my son is three. And yites are the biggest thing in the world. He wants to see more and more yites. Let's stop by the yites. Let's stop by the yites. He wants to see yites. So, so we're going bigger this year. And that's how we're preparing. And we're uh, going to jump into the celebration. We're not, you know, we're not like some people who already had trees up before Thanksgiving. You know, we're not one of those people. I love Christmas, but, right? And so, as I was thinking about this, this message of hope that we're going to talk about, the celebration of hope that we're coming into, I thought about my father-in-law. My father-in-law, some of you know, was a man named Jack Frost. So for those of you that don't know, and you're like, really? You're like, Really? He, um, he was named Jack Frost because, not like the, the winter character, but because his real name was Ulysses. Ulysses Barney. Ulysses Barney Frost IV. And so his parents said, 
we will have mercy on you. We will not send you into the schoolyard with a name like Ulysses. We'll call you Jack, even though you are the fourth. And so Jack Frost is his name. Absolutely nothing to do with winter or the North Pole and Arctic tundra. The man lived in Florida. <laughs> Daytona Beach, Florida, and he fished. Fishing was his thing. And so he was actually, uh, became a preacher, but before he was a preacher, he was a fisherman. He was proud of it. He, as a matter of fact, he maintained his, his captain's license all the way through until he passed away about 11 years ago now um, because he was a fisherman at heart. But the thing about it is when he was fishing, he was extreme. He would stay out. He did not want to return to the docks with no fish. So if he'd go out and you had a couple of bad days, couldn't find a bite of fish, couldn't get on any fish, oh, a storm's coming. Normal people would say, well, let's get out of here and we'll come back when it's time. Not my father-in-law. My father-in-law was like, we're staying out until we got a load of fish. So this storm, guess what? We're going to sit it out. We're going to ride this storm out. And so because he did that, he tended to make a lot of money and a lot of people wanted to work for him. They wanted to work for him until they figured out why he made a lot of money. Until they figured out that he was sitting out in the middle of the ocean in the middle of a storm with waves like 15, 20 feet high coming across a boat that's about 60 feet long. And so the other thing was is he wasn't the nicest guy in the world. He actually was a very unlikable person when he was a fishing boat captain. He, he carried the name Captain Bly. But having been this person, he learned something. He figured something out. He figured how to weather a storm. He figured out how you stay out and you live and you survive in the storm. And he always used to say, turn your bow into the wind and the waves, just off center of the wind and waves, and get on anchor. If you can get on anchor, you'll make it. You're going to be okay. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about our anchor today. And what is our anchor and what's holding on to us. And so let's look at the passage and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll get into it. So we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right. Well, Father, I thank you for everybody in here. Thank you for every person that has come this morning looking and searching for you to be connected in a deeper way to you and to those around them. Lord, we open our hearts right now to receive what you are bringing to us this morning. We say, speak to us. Give us revelation. And bring your word alive in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. So, we're in a book, you notice, called Hebrews. So, and, and in the, the scripture passage there, if you're, if you're new or you hadn't been around um, in walking the Christian walk for a while, you might be like, some of that language is weird. So, let's take a look at some of that really quickly. So, it's the book of Hebrews, so it's written, written to Jewish people. The particular Jewish people that this was written to were what's called the diaspora. Not the people in Israel around Jerusalem, but the people that had been spread out around the, the Roman Empire. But they were Jews. 
converted Jews, believers at this point. And what was happening at this time was something called the Neronian persecution. Now, Nero, you probably heard of Nero before, Emperor Nero, was, they believe he was just flat insane, but he did not like Christians. And so he was sending Christians to the lion's den. He was feeding them to lions for entertainment. He was using them as light poles along the road, as torches. And this is what was happening. Well, some of the Jewish believers then were beginning to want to go back to their, their previous practice of Judaism because it was looked at as an ancient religion and he didn't have any beef with them. He just didn't like this new thing that was rising up. It concerned him and he didn't like it. So you have the, the listeners of this letter are those who are thinking about moving back into to Judaism. At this time, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. In 70 AD, the Roman, Empire, Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And so the uh, scholars say that it is, apparently the temple is still standing at this time where sacrifice took place. It's the main temple where the sacrifices took place. And so they reckon this is about 68 AD when this book was written. And they're not sure who the writer is. Uh, some say it's Paul. Some say that the language is a little... High, more high Greek than what Paul communicated in, and so they think it may be somebody else. So they're not exactly sure there's people on all sides of the issue. So what's this curtain they're talking about? Can you put that, um, that scripture back up real quick? Does it, enter, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And so what is this curtain we're talking about? It's the place you know, when we think of curtains, right, you think, oh, who's behind the curtain? And you automatically, depending how old you are, I guess, but you automatically think, Wizard of Oz, the little man's behind the curtain, right? Well, this curtain is not just any curtain. It's not, it's not a nice sheer curtain. This is actually a large, heavy curtain. And this place is called the Holy of Holies. And it's in the middle sanctuary of the temple. And the Holy of Holies is a place that... Um, the high priest would go once a year. And I have a scripture here. We, we, we'll gather a little bit of, of, I don't know if I have it up there, but we, a little bit of context. Levit, Leviticus 16.15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is before the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So, the high priest would come in with the blood and sprinkle it over this mercy seat. Can you show us the picture of the mercy seat there? Here is the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark was the only thing inside the Holy of Holies. The only thing in there. On the top of the Ark, there is considered the mercy seat, and that's where they would pour the blood. The high priest to atone for his sins and the sins of Israel. Once a year. So, inside of this ark were three things. There were the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were covenant promises of God. Well, you think, well, they were commandments. They told him what to do. That was a symbol of a covenant being made with God and the people. He said, you obey these commandments, and I will hold on to my promises. I'll be faithful to my promises. So, it's a symbol of the the promises of God. The other thing was Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod is believed to be the, actually the staff 
that Moses used in Egypt when he set the people free from Egypt. It turned into a snake. He set off plagues. He did all of this with that staff. And that's what it's, that's what it's uh, believed to be. And the staff is a symbol of the faithfulness of God to deliver his people out of trouble. And there's also a jar of manna. Manna was a food that was found in the desert as the people wandered in the desert for 40 years. After they left Egypt, the, the Red Seas parted, they left Egypt, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And manna was a food that fell to the ground every morning. Every morning they would go out and they would find this, because there's like a million people. How are you going to feed a million people in the middle of the wilderness at a time? And so they gathered this food every morning and they ate it. So this is a symbol of God's faithfulness of provision. He's faithful to provide. And those were the things that were in the ark. So the ark itself represented hope to God's people. Hope to God's people. And they put their faith in that and knowing that he has done it before and he will do it again. And that was what this represented. And so the priest entered there once a year, atoned for the sins and the sins of Israel, and he walked back out. And that was it. And so there's a, bit of, a little bit of a background for what's going on, what the curtain is, and what all, what all that is about. And so as I was thinking on this verse, I thought about when I had left high school. And I was struggling when I left high school to figure out where I was, what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, all that stuff. And I had all these friends that were just going straight into college and they were going to graduate in four years because they knew exactly what they wanted to do and, and what they were going to do with the rest of their lives. And I struggled, and I struggled. I even sat out my first year to try to figure it out. And even after I went in, I couldn't figure it out. And I was just, I was depressed and reaching, and, and I had several people that were trying to help me, and, and they would share things with me, and I couldn't even hear them. And I was trying to find my way. And then at 23 years old, God came into my life, and he spoke to me. And I became a believer for the first time at 23 years old. And for the first time in my life, I understood what this was about. So the first fill-in is who needs an anchor. For the first time in my life, I had some kind of anchor to hold on to. And you know what? I've been through tough times since then. I've been through stormy seas since, since then through difficult and dark times since then, but I always had something to hold on to, to keep me steady. I wasn't alone in drifting like I had been before I knew Jesus, before I was a believer. And so Acts 27, 29, we'll read this, is Paul is on a ship and he's crossing the Mediterranean and there's a storm. And in, in Acts 27, 29, it says this, Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Four anchors. In the next verse, it actually says that some guys were shysters and dropped a boat and, and tried to, to head on to the, to the shore in a, in a rowboat because they were, they were acting like they were putting out anchors off the bow, but they were actually just taking off. So Jack... Master seaman, master fisherman, in storms, had his anchor in the bottom of the ocean. Paul's ship had his anchor in the bottom of the ocean. We need an anchor in our life. So the second feeling is, 
What are we anchored to, though? What is it that we're anchored to? In 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So we have faith in God, and he gives us hope. And there's love, and the greatest of these is love. Well, 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. So those things remain. Our faith and our hope in love, in God, will never fade away, will always be strong, are an anchor to the bottom of the sea for us to hold on to. His reckless love. I love that song. He's coming after us. He's running after us. We have a hope that there's a God who's coming after us to rescue us when we're in time of need. Beautiful, beautiful. But the funny thing about an anchor is that we believe it's there, but we can't see it. It's connected to the bottom of the ocean, but we can't see that it's connected to the bottom of the ocean. We know that it's connected to the bottom of the ocean because we feel its pull. We feel it holding us into place. So like the sailor places his faith and his hope in the anchor, we have placed our hope and faith in our anchor, Jesus. So what are we anchored to? We're anchored to Jesus. If you're a believer, you're anchored to Jesus. Verse 20 uh, Hebrews 6, verse 20, it says, Where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf, he has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, in verse 20, we see this, this word forerunner. And it's saying that Jesus has gone before us, kind of like a scout. He's gone ahead of us. But there's this word that, that, that forerunner is adapted from. And it's the Greek word prodromos. Do we have that? We've got that, don't we? So you can see how it's spelled. Prodromos. Funny thing about this word is it's the only time it's seen in the New Testament. The only time it's seen in the New Testament. And it means forerunner and scout. But in that time period, around that area, that word was used to describe a small rowboat that would go ahead into the harbor and carry the anchor of the bigger ship. In many cases, that what was used, it would go into the harbor and guide the ship in with the anchor line. The ship would be pulled into safe harbor. So Jesus has gone before us to establish a safe harbor for us. He carries our anchor into safe harbor, and he has anchored us into eternity. He has anchored us into eternity. He's anchored us now and forever. In uh, the Mirror Bible, uh, Francois Dufois, it's a paraphrased Bible. He says verse 19 like this to give us an idea of what, it, of what this is. Our hearts and minds are certain, anchored securely within the innermost courts of God's immediate presence. Securely within the innermost courts of God's immediate presence. Jesus has carried us into God's 
immediate presence. So where is our anchor tied? All the way into eternity, into the presence, into the inner courts of God. That is where our anchor is tied. In Matthew 27, 50 and 51, it says Jesus is uh, dying on the cross. It says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Even before Jesus had risen again, just when he died, he opened up the veil, the place of God's presence in the ark, made it available to everyone. Opened up to the inner courts of God's very presence. Jesus has gone ahead. John 14, 3, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. John 14, 20 says, On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He has made a way for us to be in him, in the Father, all together, in the inner courts, the very presence of our Father in heaven. And one more thing I know you're wondering about is, so what does this Melchizedek have to do with anything? Who is this Melchizedek character that we're reading about? And so in Hebrews chap- uh, yeah, chapter 7, in uh, verse 2 and 3, it says, And to him Abraham apportioned a, a, tenth, do I have, yeah, a tenth of everything. Um, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, he is the king of Salem, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy without beginning or end, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So he is a type and figure and foreshadow of Jesus to come. That's who Melchizedek is, and that's why he referenced it to these Jews who well know the story of Melchizedek to establish to them that this is indeed him. This is the one without end. This is our king of peace. This is our king of righteousness who is taking us to the very presence of God. When I was in college, uh, when I was fumbling around and figuring things out, one of my majors was marine science. And when I was a marine science student, we would come down to, I was in Columbia, but we would come down to Baruch Institute down in Pauley's Island. And... uh, you know, we'd go in the marshes and, and, and take test samples and core samples and all that kind of stuff. And one day, we were at the South Inlet in Polly's, the, uh, yeah, the Swash in, in Polly's Island. And we're standing there, and the professor, he says, you know what? I've been coming here for a long time. And about 30, 35 years ago, we would come down and we would fish right here, right here in this inlet. And he said, and where you're standing right now? We're standing probably ankle deep in the water, just kind of standing around doing stuff. Said you couldn't stand there. 
said, you'd be underwater if you were standing there. We we're like, whoa, really? He's like, yeah. And he said, as a matter of fact, you see these three houses? <clears throat> they weren't there then either, but not because they weren't built, but because there wasn't sand there to put them on. And I thought to myself, wow. Wow. Our hope and our faith is in something immovable. Something immovable. It won't go away. And then he said, and without human intervention, in another 40 years, those houses won't be there again. Wow. But our God is today. He's forever. He's today and he's forever. He's for us. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of a wise man who built his house upon the rock and a foolish man who built his house upon the sand that was, mo- that was movable. So we are anchored into eternity through Jesus Christ, who's carried us there, who's leading us there, who's gone forward to make a way for us, who's given us a hope and a future. And that is what we're celebrating here in a few weeks the arrival of hope to the world. You remember when I talked about that covenant? Remember when I talked about the, the, the ark represented, the tablets represented a covenant with God? We're celebrating the arrival of a better covenant. The veil being torn in two is a symbol of a new covenant, a better covenant for you and for me. Now, some people come to church, and we come to learn. That's good. Some people come in hopes of like a deeper revelation, like ah, that aha moment. Ah, the Lord spoke to my heart. Yes. Some of us come for fellowship because we want to be with, with other believers. But some people come because they need hope. There's some people sitting here right now that are in dire need of some kind of hope. The proverb says that hope deferred makes a heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And I really believe that Jesus answers a longing. Even if you're already a believer and you're struggling for hope, he's going to bring it to you. You hang on. It's coming to you. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for, assurance in what we do not see. We put our faith forward. And I don't do I have a, is somebody doing music? I don't even know. I didn't bother to ask that question. You can come on up now. And I want, to ask, I want to ask a question. I want to ask how many of you be, that are believers out there, you have been through hopelessness and you found hope. You're, you're, probably, you're already a Christian, but you're in stormy seas and somehow Jesus made it better. 
Who's been there? Maybe the situation didn't change, but a peace that passes all your understanding came upon you and made it easier to bear the brunt of the waves. By show of hands, let me just see how many people have been there. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And so I have another question. How many of you believers, or, or maybe you're not yet a believer? How many of you are looking for hope right now? You need hope going into this Christmas season right now. Let me, go, yeah, go ahead. I see some, let me see. You're in a desperate place. You're in need. And here's what I want to do. If I could ask those people that raised their hand the first time to be incredibly bold, you don't have to. I'm not making you. But what I would like to do is for the people that answered that second question by raising their hand, I would like for us to go to them and pray for them right now in their place of need. They're needing a hope. They're reaching out for their anchor. And just pray that Jesus would come, the Holy Spirit would come and answer that need. Can we do that right now? Maybe we should all stand up, maybe to make it easier to get around, I don't know. And if you would like somebody to come and pray for you right now, just raise your hand, and somebody is going to come around and just pray for you to have hope. Somebody will come and pray. You ready? Anybody? People? If you're in need of hope, our prayer team up here, they'll come as well and pray for you. I'm just going to pray a quick prayer and then I'm just going to let you guys go. I'm going to let you go at it. Just pray for, pray for anybody that needs it. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. We just say, have your way. Guide us and show us as we pray for one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you can learn more about us by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you need prayer, you can call us or email care at seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel called to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or text any amount to 84321 and follow the prompts.